In today's special episode from BMO Equity Research Metal Matters podcast, Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst, discusses key takeaways from the recent mining in Daba conference in Cape Town. Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Hi, I'm just back from Mining in Daba and a big thanks to everyone who attended the presentation or sessions I participated in or attended the BMO reception down in Cape Town. Uh, there is nothing better than catching up with great people and some boards helps as well for those of us residing in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, I'm going to give you five short takeaways from my discussions down there. So number one, for many of us, particularly those of us in a developed world bubble, we hear a lot about China and China's dominance of supply chains being a threat. For African miners and African governments, China's investment is an opportunity and something they want to be a part of. And China gets stuff done well, others talk about doing stuff, and that's pretty good if you're in an emerging market. China is a partner to Africa, and in a number of ways beyond mining. I also note, interestingly, that some of the largest stands at the conference were from the Chinese mining equipment firms, showing that exports into emerging markets still remain pretty strong. Secondly, talking about getting things done, Simon Du, big iron ore mine in Guinea. So winning the company kind of fronting if you want China's investment in Simandu had a fantastic video on its stand. For all the people out there who think uh, the mine isn't really happening, you should try and see this video. Huge rows of concrete pillars in place for the railway, uh, plans for the future investment in the port, big focus on how it was employing and empowering local businesses. Indab also saw passionate presentations on this topic from the Mines Ministry about how this could be transformational for that region of Guinea. Uh, well, at least according to my basic French. Um, so it's coming, and it might actually be held up as a benchmark for how China can add value to West African iron ore after the 2010-2011 false start. When we get a first ore, could be as early as next year, but realistically, 26-27 is when we see that ramp up. Number three, every mining company you would meet would say at least once, oh, do you know it's the largest ever US delegation at US Mining in Daba? Lots of excitement around that. And there is no doubt the US is getting much more serious about securing raw materials. We did see some infrastructure spending announced as well. We're really only seeing the initial steps in terms of action. Uh, there were lots of mining companies complaining about a lack of funding options. And I would argue that, given it is a cyclical sector, the funding model probably still needs to change a bit. I, um, I believe we might need to see some caps and calls on realised prices to de-risk projects. And that would get some stuff done, provided the capital costs are realistic, which is undeniably a bit of a problem still in the mining industry. And number four, supply cuts still required in certain commodities. And in some of these, we're in a bit of a who blinks first type of scenario. Every miner would point to someone else having to take the hit. And I would say for that, and particularly for South Africa, the PGM sector is perhaps front and centre of that. Balance sheet's been bolstered by the past couple of years. There's a high chrome ore price that's providing some of them with tailwinds. The sector which seems intent on a long battle to destruction. 
rather than one making rational decisions about near-term capacity. Also interesting to see the palladium price dropping below platinum for the first time since 2017, I think, this week. Um, That is uh, a function of palladium price falling rather than platinum price rising. We also have talk of uh, big cobalt stockpiles, perhaps more to come from Africa in 2024 in terms of lithium supply. I still argue the energy transition trend is fine. Um, China new energy vehicle sales up 79% year on year in January. And low prices are helping end demand. But from the raw material side, certain areas clearly have too much capacity for now. Uh, lithium or cobalt ETF, anyone? For the fifth one, well, one market where we did actually see physical ETFs emerge after overcapacity was uranium. And that has certainly helped the price. Never underestimate the entrepreneurial side of the mining industry, though. As far as I could see, there were more uranium developers at the one-to-one conference I attended than for any other commodity. The attendance at that conference does tend to move around with what prices are doing. I suppose keeping on the theme of uranium, the past couple of weeks have seen another recent record for uranium prices. If you look at a year-on-year price move chart for the major commodities under our coverage, it's frankly ridiculous. Uh, gold's a little bit higher. Most are lower year-on-year. Uranium's up about 100%. So what's happened recently? On the demand side, or at least the demand sentiment side, we've seen nuclear power officially labelled as strategic for the EU's power sector decarbonisation. Uh, we've seen the European Small Modular Reactor Industrial Alliance launched. In Japan... Well, Japan added uranium to its critical minerals list, which makes investments eligible for government-backed funding. Of course, Japan has no real domestic uranium resource. It does have a bit of inventory, though, um, around 6,600 tonnes uh, U. That's about six years of demand at present, according to the country's Ministry of uh, Economy, Trade and Industry. But in a market where it does take a while to build a reactor, and these are long-term strategic plans, I think we will see some overseas investment, perhaps from the Japanese trading houses. And we'd also expect to see maybe some additions to enrichment capacity to reduce dependence on Russia and China. Um, On the demand side, we've also seen the restart of the Palisades nuclear power facility in the US. And Palisades operator Holdec International has also announced it's developed a combined nuclear solar plant that is entirely carbon free, coupling a small modular reactor a solar thermal system and a green boiler which can store heat. Um, it's interesting to say that on the on the press release around this, it could fit on existing coal sites and reduce the natural intermittency from additional solar generation. This is something we talked about a lot last year around the World Nuclear Association Forum. We see some pretty strong potential for this to be deployed, not only across North America, but also other markets with ageing coal-fired power plants. Finally, on demand, the flag that Hyundai has uh, announced a study into nuclear's use in shipping. And again, we this is something we also think is a good case for small modular reactors. But many of these are all longer term. It's really been the supply side which has generated more excitement. Uh, Kazatom from Sidens for 2024 was 14% below previous high-level targets. And given the challenges we're seeing to ramping up production this year, now it appears unlikely that the 2025 subsoil use agreement target can be met. So we're looking at a forecast of about £23 million for uranium in 2024, and that shrinks a little to £7 million in 2025. 
I can certainly appreciate why uranium has reached these current price levels. It's still hard to underwrite a above $100 per pound uranium price as fundamentally justified at the present time. I discussed copper at length in the last Metal Matters, but I wanted to give an update given the importance of any copper price move to the wider sector. Of course, I'm being asked a lot why the LME price hasn't moved yet. It's because Chinese purchasers have been heading off on holiday for the new year, while tighter credit liquidity at this time of year means that inventory holdings are typically depleted. Then, and it can be four to six weeks after Lunar New Year, the buyer's call in the market increases again, and that's when the raw material tightness transfers into a tighter refined market. Let's talk about the precedence here. Periods in the past when copper TCs have dropped below $30 a tonne. So June 2009, uh, the initial recovery from the, the GFC, so three months after the spot TC dropped below $30 a tonne, the copper price rose 24%. But that was about uh, $1,200 a tonne at that point. November 2011, so three, three months after the TCRC fall, prices gained 11% or about $900 a tonne. And in February 2021, we saw a 20% gain. That was over $1,600 a tonne in the three months after TCs fell below 30, TCRCs fell below 30 and 3. So the precedents clearly point to a decent copper price gain over the remainder of Q1. To close things off, I wanted to talk about a really interesting data point my team pulled out of the massive splurge of Chinese data for 2023 as a whole. So China's got about 5,000 registered coal enterprises all in all, and they produce over 4 billion tonnes of coal. 36% of them, that's about 1,800 companies, were loss-making last year. 2015, which is when we saw the Beijing government somewhat panic about the coal industry, only 34% of firms were losing money. But if we put it in context, last year the 5,500 kcal coal price, FOB Qingdao, averaged about uh, 966 RMB per tonne. That's more than double the 2015 average level. Yes, long-term contracts were settled at prices perhaps below this, but even so it implies the cost structure of the Chinese coal industry has moved up more aggressively than thought in recent years. There are three things I'd like you to think about regarding this. The first is obvious. We perhaps need to be thinking about a through-cycle price that reflects this cost inflation, and that would be higher than previously envisioned, and potentially makes the NDRC official price range somewhat impractical. The second is that, well, if this is happening in coal, it's probably happening in other commodities. China's a marginal supplier of a number of raw materials, zinc, iron ore, zinc, bauxite. But perhaps we need to look at the short-run marginal costs of these differently. And lastly, well, my big worry is still the quality of loan books at Chinese banks, which are undoubtedly deteriorating. At some point, we might have to see some supply-side reform consolidation and reflation to fix these and stop this perennial losses in some of these industries. Actually, there's one more very important thing I want to flag. At BMO, we are very proud to once more be sponsoring the 100 Inspirational Women in Mining this year, published by WIM UK. Uh, This is the fifth consecutive edition we've been involved with, 
and each time you hear the phenomenal stories of women all across the world who are making a real difference in the mining sector and are role models for future generations. Nominations are now open for the 2024 edition and if there's someone you would like to put forward, I would strongly encourage you to do so. We've done at www.womeninmining.org.uk forward slash WIM100. Thank you for listening to Metal Matters. Please join me again in a couple of weeks for a special preview of BMO's 33rd Global Annual Metals Mining and Crystal Minerals Conference. And also keep an eye out for a one-off special I've recorded with Rodawan, CEO of ICMM, on some of the good things the industry is bringing to global society. Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash markets plus. For BMO disclosures, please visit bmocm.com slash podcast slash disclaimer.